Today I'm joined by Gil Alexander. Gil, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Gil Alexander. Gil, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Jake, appreciate you having me on. Thank you. So, Gil, how did it all start for you in sports betting? People have different paths and trajectories. What was yours? Uh, I was very much that uh, stereotypical sports betting kid where, you know, it sort of came to me naturally. My parents, certainly, I, I didn't grow up in a family of sports bettors, but when I was a kid, I, you know, I collected baseball cards. I sort of was pretty obsessed with price guides of baseball cards, and so I guess that was sort of my first monetary attachment to something related to sports but then i was the kid in in, you know in in grade school who ran a football pool it was just something that came naturally to me no one taught me how to do it i just figured well this seems natural Uh, and i always worried that i'd get caught it was a you know when i got older it was a private school that i went to outside of washington dc and uh one day finally after a few years of running just a pick nfl pool a uh, teacher finally did catch me, grabbed my shoulder, and this was the moment I had dreaded for years. And he looked at me and he said, how can I get in on this, Gil? And so I knew <laughs> I knew that maybe what I was doing had some, a broader appeal, if you will. Uh, so that was, that was, you know, I was just that kid. And uh, then as, a, you know, as an adult, I, I immediately gravitated towards, towards betting on sports. That was something I did naturally. And then as I sort of got older in my actual professional life of radio, uh, for me, when the advent of podcasting came, this was my sort of transition into, okay, I'm going to meld those two worlds into a podcast, and the rest is sort of history for what I do for a living. Sounds like you might have been destined for the bookmaking side. Did you ever delve into that side of things at all? Not really. Um, you know, I, mean, I think that just the, the, the running of the pool as a kid was my one foray into that. I never really fashioned myself as the bookmaking side, always just as a better did you have any mentors that helped guide you through the earlier years and some of the perils that come with sports betting? You know, did I have any any mentors? I think one of the greatest things about living when we do right now, and I, and I do think not to not to sort of cast a uh, a light on everybody's uh, mortality, but we sort of live in a time now in Las Vegas where the legends of Las Vegas are getting to an age where I think we can say, hey, look, you know, they're not going to be around forever. And what I mean by that is obviously the, the, their years are, they're, they're up in years. And so Roxy Roxborough uh, is a gentleman who uh, I've had the honor of hanging out with uh, from time to time and just sitting and listening. You know, we, we sometimes lose that characteristic, I think, uh, when we get older. But listening to, to someone like him, he can impart more wisdom in one night than, uh, than I could probably in a lifetime. Listening to people like him, uh, Chris Andrews, 
Jimmy Vaccaro. Those those are the folks on that side of the desk. But I think also the the best sports bettors I've had. I, I think if if anything, if if I've had one sort of uh, privilege, and maybe in a way that not a lot of others have had, is I've been exposed to all kinds of different sports bettors. And I think from from the most mathematical based approach, sports bettors who are you know, in some cases, very, very successful to the non-mathematical sports bettors who are equally as successful, who sort of uh, approach their craft, you know, in in the darkness, you know, only offshore, uh, don't really talk uh, in public, won't go on any shows, but I'm I'm super close with them. And then and then just to to observe the more smoke and mirrors betters who just are kind of the old school betters who have been around for 30, 40 years who have their own approach and, and sometimes manage to arrive at correct uh, conclusions and, and have a, uh, an interesting record themselves. So I think that's been my joy and my privilege is that I've been able to glean from all kinds of handicappers and all kinds of people on the other side of the desk. And I don't know how many people there are who have been as lucky as I have to sort of be in that position to hang out with that many people throughout the industry. And that learning by osmosis part of it, how critical and important has that been over the years? And and not everyone can get access to the types of people you have, but has that been a a crucial part of your development? I think so. I think, I think, you know, I don't, I don't think that's specific to sports betting. I think in any walk of life, right? Any one of us who has whatever interest we have, we would all be better off if we, sort of observed. And then if you're really being smart about what you're doing, you're, you're taking in all of it and really trying to make a, a judgment, uh, without any super connotation to that word, but you're really trying to make an assessment, I should say, as to what really is the smart way and what is not. And I think if you're, if you really apply yourself to whatever craft it is that you do, uh, and and have humility and not think that you know everything. And again, this goes well beyond sports betting. I know this sounds like a uh, just a a basic college 101 psychology course, but it's sort of I find that that humility goes a long way. And I think with that, you realize your way is not the only way. In fact, your way is probably not the way most of the time. And maybe you can learn from all the different people. And 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 by the way, you could also. You know, it doesn't translate to the smartest people in the room are not always right either all the time. So I think you can you can um, through observation and, and through real study, real immersion. That's that's the biggest thing I think I think with legalization. And I'm just sort of rambling here, Jake, if you'll forgive me. But I think with legalization in in America now, which is not something that, uh, you know, other parts of the world, as you very well know, have had to deal with in any sort of similar way. But now that we're having a broader based pool of betters. I think the most fascinating thing is just who is going to, you know, what what kind of betters are they going to be, the new swath of betters? Are they going to be just in this construct of you bet ATS against the spread, you bet season wins, you bet futures. And what I try to talk about on my show a lot is how you shouldn't adhere to a construct. You should be able to adapt from sport to sport and from year to year and evolve with sports betting. Because if you're doing the same things for five years, six years, whatever, I guarantee that it has caught up to you and you're getting the worst of it at that point. 
if that made any sense. No, absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk baseball now. You're a Sabermetrics fan, and we've obviously had Moneyball. Take us through betting on baseball pre- and post-Moneyball. What was it like, and how has it evolved through that era? So I, when I read Moneyball in 2003, Michael Lewis's great book about you know the inefficiencies of player personnel acquisition in Major League Baseball through the lens of the Oakland A's, Movies were ma- a movie was made about it, of course, with Brad Pitt. Back in those days, and I, all I thought about when I read that was gambling, gambling, using those same inefficiencies to beat the baseball betting market. And so I had many good years. I had some bad ones, but I had many, many good years betting baseball. And it was primarily through what would now be considered really widespread, very much well-known advanced statistics, like fielding independent pitching, batting average on balls in play, things I talk about on my show openly now. But, you know, 2005 through 2010, 2011 even, 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 even 12 and 13 to some degree, you could still beat baseball lines using the most, and I'll, I'll use a funny sentence here, using the most basic of the advanced stats, using the most basic of the sabermetrics. Well, you can't do that anymore. Like that's all built into the line. Everybody knows that inefficiency now, and it's in the, in the lines themselves. And so with baseball betting now, and I even said it this year on the show, cause I ended up spinning my wheels. I think I ended up, uh, for the entire year, minus 0.25 units. I basically ran in place. I almost landed right on zero. Uh, and then one of the baseball experts on my show, the only thing we did on the show was what we, you know, pre-flop baseball bets. So baseball bets before the game started on the money line, and, and we had some different variations. But really how I make money in baseball, some of which are ways that I have hinted about on the show, some of which I will not, is derivative markets in baseball, uh, first inning stuff, uh, live betting. Because I think if you're thinking you're going to beat baseball now, betting individual games on a daily basis, are there people that have uh, beaten it this past year? Of course there are. Uh, But I would suggest that those people, if they did the same thing for the next three years, they will be just as unsuccessful as they are successful. And I think you really, that gets to the broader discussion what we are talking about before. I think in baseball specifically, it's a great example of how you have to adapt now. It's just not the same. And by the way, the lines now, it used to be that you could wake up in the morning and you would still get the best of the number, uh, either on the East Coast or on the West Coast in the United States. If you're not betting overnight pre-flop baseball lines now, by the time you're waking up in the morning, chances are the line has just drifted away from you. And so I think as more bettors have gotten into it, it's also a, a change in when the appropriate time perhaps is to make bets. Because I think if you, don't, if you don't get the best of it early or if you're getting them right after lineups, it's kind of a nebulous middle area. So you've had to adapt in many different ways. So do you think Sabermetrics will continue to develop or do you think it's, well, there is a ceiling and we're approaching it now? I, you listen, I think they'll continue to develop. The question becomes, Jake, what of those stats is directly applicable to beating baseball betting lines? And I would argue that they're so much into the minutia now of pitch FX and spin rates and launch angles that honestly most of that I would suggest doesn't apply directly to winning baseball bets. I think we've I think there is a saturation, a, a sort of I don't know, paralysis by analysis, the kids like to say. Uh, I, I think there is a point in anybody's predictive model where, you know, there's too many layers to it. And you, you always have to really make an assessment what matters 
and weight properly what matters versus what doesn't. So do you think then power ratings and power rankings or other assessments of, of teams and players have very much infiltrated the market and are incorporated in the market? And now to win at sports betting, you may need to attack the market or the marketplace itself, whether it is, like you mentioned, derivative betting or other approaches, rather than pure handicapping. Is that fair to say, do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to erase pure handicapping as, as a thing of the past entirely. But yes, generally what you're saying I think is true. I think that you, uh, in order to be successful in this, you have to realize that, yeah, you're going to have to get creative. You're going to have to figure out different um, moments in time where different ways of beating it are going to be applicable at different times. So one of them is, yeah, people who are just playing numbers. Now, I didn't get into this to sit at a computer screen all day and pick off bad numbers and arbitrage and do all that kind of stuff. Some people do that, and that will always be available to whoever uh, loves doing that as a discipline. Not what I like to do. I, I like to... Uh, exploit derivative markets, you know, not just necessarily on the pricing of things. What about football then? We talk about baseball pre and post Moneyball, for example, and Sabermetrics potentially approaching a ceiling. Is football in the same mold, do you think, or is it further back, let's say? I would say with football, and I'll even be more simplistic about football, because baseball sort of gets into areas where you're like, well, I don't know if I want to talk about this particular way to bet or that particular way. Football, I, I say it on my show. I do a, a satellite radio show Monday through Friday on uh, on uh, VEASAN, the Vegas Stats and Information Network at Sirius XM Channel 204. It's called The Numbers Game, and I say openly on that show, you know, look, people who are betting the NFL, let's say ATS against the spread, it's kind of for the birds. And people hate when I say that. They're like, well, now how do you have a gambling show, dude, and you're talking about this, and you're saying, oh, it's kind of for the birds. Well, what I mean by that is, and I'll quote Roxy Roxborough, the, who I mentioned earlier on the show, who's the uh, legendary founder of Las Vegas Sports Consultants, who famously said to me one day uh, in Las Vegas, he said, Gil, no one beats the NFL. And what he means by that, and when I say this to people, everyone's like, oh, what are you talking about? I had this great year or whatever. It doesn't mean you can't beat it for a week or a month or even a year. But if all you're doing is betting NFL lines year after year after year, every week, eventually you're going to be in the red. It's just the market is too efficient. And so I always say, I'm like, look, the notion of teasers, there was a time where people scoffed at teasers in the NFL. And I say it all the time now, if you're betting this stuff ATS and you're not teasing, teasing is the only way to go in the NFL now. Teasing, like you could have a much better betting experience on football Sundays not betting anything against the spread and just teasing properly, by the way, because there are proper teases to make uh, and some improper ones to make, then you're going to have a far better and a far more profitable betting experience. And I always say, if you don't believe me, because some people will always, you know how gamblers are, they always think they know best all the time. And so everybody's got, you know, no matter what you say, there's going to be detractors from that. But I, I say with that, I go, listen, you don't have to believe me. And I gave a whole dissertation on my podcast the other day about the 21 different permutations of teasers that were at the South Point Hotel Casino in Las Vegas uh, through the 2016 NFL season. And what they did when they did their inventory on teasers is they realized they were getting beaten on 15 of those 21. In other words, uh, there's manipulation, 6.6 6 and a half, 7 point versus 2 through 8 teams. And so there's 21 different permutations of that. They were getting beat on, beat on 15 of them. 
And so they literally, in order to combat that, because they're not going to sit there lying down, you know how sports books are, they change their pricing on it. So again, if you don't believe me, there's the proof in the pudding that it's right there in the numbers at a sports book. And so then once you present that evidence to people, they're like, oh, maybe what he's saying is actually kind of true. It's not actually a weakness he's talking about. He's actually trying to help you. So I think, and I guess, Jake, that's the, that's the thing about sports betting that's so fascinating is, is the psychology of it all and how, you know, there's, there's recreational and amateur sports bettors and there's the most professional of sports bettors. And sometimes, you know, the most professional get very territorial about sports betting. And um, it's just a fascinating window into human psychology, I think, the whole subject matter. I could talk about it for days. Absolutely. The game theory aspect to it all and the humility part you mentioned, it's it's so critical. So I want to touch on NFL markets being so efficient. What is the reason? I assume there are many. Is it is part of it the randomness of football with, you know, fumbles fumbles recovered, you know, interceptions, turnovers generally, and you cannot necessarily wrap your hands around that as well as say a pitcher who's on the mound and will pitch independently of, of many other factors or players, for example? Uh, yeah, that's that's part of it because I will say baseball is a individual sport disguised as a team sport, right? Because every play in baseball starts with one human being throwing a ball to another one with a bat. And so it's much more quantifiable when it's an individual to an individual to start every play. Football is obviously a marriage of, of, of 11 guys on each side of the uh, line of scrimmage. And the randomness is definitely one is is definitely it's the most random of sports in terms of turnovers like that. Uh, no other sport has that kind of unpredictable uh, variance. I would I would suggest that is absolutely the case. That's part of it. The other part of it is just the mechanical nature of football, which is in the United States college and NFL football. While there are exceptions during midweek, the vast majority of the games occur college on Saturday, pro on Sunday. And there's a there's a method, there's a routine to how books will put out lines with lower limits at the very beginning. Uh, professional money, sharper money will come in and calibrate those lines at low limits. They'll bat them around and, and you know, tenderize them. And then when it's sort of jockeyed into position, they'll raise the limits on those numbers. And by end of week. Uh, you know, it's just a process where those lines are going to, and here's the thing, the NFL, and we know this, and this is why teasers, what I was talking about before, teasers are only good in the national football league. Anybody who's teasing college football or professional basketball or college basketball, and we know this without any numbers, we just know this viscerally and as, as fans of the sports, we know that the scoring in those sports are much more volatile, much more high scoring, much more uh, the, the scores, the final scores are much more um, volatile, high scoring than in the NFL, where numbers tend to fall around sevens and threes. And so it makes sense that if you're manipulating lines in your favor. So there's lots of uh, that, that it would be a better, uh, uh, an easier or a more, uh, uh, it would maximize your profits more in the NFL. It's just, it's both of those factors. And so the NFL for me is, it makes sense. You don't even need the numbers to back it up. It makes sense why that's the one sport where if you're trying to beat it ATS, um, it's it's not the one that's going to long-term be the best for you. So talking about NFL markets being so efficient and very difficult to ground out you know, a profit playing a full seasons or multiple seasons, 
yet we see things like, and this obviously is not directly related to betting, but, you know, the Giants game recently where there was the two-point conversion down 14 after scoring a touchdown, for example, and the whole sports betting, even sports media world going wild about (laughs) what the math says, what it doesn't say, all that type of stuff. How do do we balance the fact that you probably cannot win long-term playing just NFL sides given it's so efficient? Yet teams and coaches and, and NFL fans and the industry and the marketplace struggles with something as simple as, as that. Well, right. I mean, that's another part of it. Uh, listen, I do, you know, I do 10 hours of radio a week on sports betting. Most of it is, is you know, I try to adhere to strictly sports betting. I don't want to do sports radio. But one exception that I make during the week is I have a gentleman on the show, Michael Lombardi, uh, who's a former NFL executive, worked with all the greats, Bill Belichick, Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells. Uh, and our segment together invariably ends up, inevitably ends up being a bitch session about coaches. And how, really, to inform our handicapping, we're handicapping the coaches, in, es- in essence. And we're also handicapping, here's what the coaches ought to be doing it, ought to be doing Who's the most or least reliable in terms of following suit, even knowing that who's who's the most reliable and actually executing that or following through with that. So and the two point conversion thing is a is a great example of how the new breed of coaches who embrace analytics get a certain way. And listen, I don't think everybody dug their heels on that two point conversion. We're referring to the Giants who were down 14 points to the Falcons a couple Monday nights ago. We're down eight and then decided to go for two and how the math behind it is absolutely sound and why they would go for two. But I'll tell you, Jake, you can have an argument for hours with some older school guys who don't embrace analytics who will push back on this tremendously because that's what they've always known. And that's the way that's just the way football is played. And you kids don't know what you're talking about. Uh, But if you can't get something as simple as a two point conversion universally understood, and you have coaches who, at the ends of games particularly, two-point conversions aside, do the absolute most ridiculous things. Like, they lose their mind. And I don't know if, if, if being on a, on a sideline is so immersive in football that they can't step back and see a bigger picture as we can who are just sitting on our couch eating a sandwich. But, you know, the Cowboys a couple weeks ago, Jason Garrett, first and 10 at the Redskins 46 with 52 seconds left and a touchdown, settling for a long field goal not going for the jugular against the skins. Uh, the Texans have won a couple games in overtime where the opposing coach uh, punted in Texans territory in overtime and went for it in their own territory uh, against the Texans in overtime. They sort of did a Jedi, Jedi mind trick against opposing coaches. It, it's just an, it's an amazing thing how you think there's only 32 teams in the NFL. You'd have the 32 best men for that job. Uh, but like every other industry, it just doesn't work out that way. And so, yeah, the, I, I think when you have any and, and we have rules, we don't know what a catch is still, uh, you know, when you have a sport. And by the way, thank God, earlier in the year, they they worked out this whole roughing the passer thing, because that really was the thing that threatened the sport the most. That was the first time where even I was like, OK, if they don't get this fixed, what are we even betting on? We don't even know what we're watching anymore. If we don't know what we're watching, I'm certainly not going to make 
wagers on this thing. Uh, so it, it's a sport that has uh, has its issues. And yeah, when you throw all of that into the mix, yeah, you can beat it for a year. Good luck beating it for two or three. I will say, you know, even recently with the Rams-Packers game, Todd Gurley decided not to go into the end zone, which was you know very relevant for sports betters. So you do see occasionally very smart plays happen, but I guess all the yep. all the bad plays are the ones that amplify things. You're right. You're right. Those it was absolutely the sound move for Gurley. But as you know, Jake, there was always a there, there's always an outcry of some betters who are like, "Oh, what is he doing? It's a total fix. What is he doing? This game is fixed." No, it was the right football play, and and that's going to happen if you bet long enough. You're going to run into one of those. <laughs> You see the numbers, you want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade, and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So tell me what it was like working with Dr. Bob. I, I believe you spent some time working together. What did you discover or learn when you had sort of two very you know, smart analytical minds together? Uh, I think I learned a lot from Bob, and I think I learned a lot about, you know, what works for me and and what works for different people. I think that's a that's a big lesson too. That there's many ways to skin the cat. One way does not always work, and people shouldn't think that their way is the is the only way to work. Bob is a pioneer in a predictive modeling for sports betting. He was at Cal. Um, for undergrad, and he took a project in a stats class and beat the NFL, basically, um, running his model, and that's what started his career. And Bob, through the years, and I've seen it firsthand, has added layers to his models, and uh, he has a pretty intricate process. He has a he has his model, and then he has what he calls his technical analysis, which is really uh, a database the Buckeye database of, of trends over the years. And he's combined the two through time to uh, tackle college football, pro football, and the NBA and college basketball. And in varying points of that evolution for him, different aspects have worked better than others. It's sort of an evolution, sort of a dynamic thing. And I think what I learned from Bob is Bob's way works for Bob. And he adheres to a really strict, no one works harder. I've never seen anybody more devoted to his craft, a good guy who really goes about it the right way. And, um, you know, he's, he's on my show uh, on VEASAN periodically. And he's just, you know, as, as, as really passionate about it as he ever has been. And that's his way of doing it. Um, I've observed others who do things, um, you know, who have, who, who do things strictly mathematical. They, they do their things their own way. But like I said, maybe the most successful better I know doesn't believe in analytics at all. And I think that jars some people where they're like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? No, no, he doesn't. He is by far the most successful sports better I know. And he scoffs at analytics. So I think what I learned from the Bob experience is that I believe in math as a base. And I, and I, my personal constitution is that if you don't have numbers backing up what you're doing, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, in most cases, most people who don't have math um, or numbers to, to as a basis for their sports betting, you're probably not going to be successful. There's always going to be exceptions to that rule, right? Those are the outliers. Uh, but I think Bob taught me about discipline and just the, the craft itself. And uh, I appreciate him very much for that. I don't necessarily do things the same way as him. You know, he almost wore it as a badge of honor, Jake, that he didn't watch games. 
you know, he would just sort of make his pick. And then he's like, I can't control the outcome. I'm going to go have dinner. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm just not wired that way. I'm, if I'm not watching it, I'm checking the score. Um, and that's okay. We're, that's what makes the world go round. We're different people. And um, I think that's also what makes sports betting, again, so fascinating, is that there's everybody has their own approach. Uh, and the way that people handle success and failure is a metaphor for other things that people experience in life. Some people handle adversity. Most people handle adversity very poorly, very emotionally. But it, but there's you know there's a there's a small percentage that doesn't let negative variants affect them, and they believe in the way that they do things, and, and it's a wonderful thing to observe. Do you think it's possible to win longer term by ignoring analytics? And I've spoken to a number of people who say they don't use analytics, but my sense, certainly in speaking with them, and not always for a very long time. Uh, is that somehow that their their intuition is so good, it basically it factors it in for them, and and they say they don't care about mathematics or analytics in their process, uh, but they're in their head or in their gut or, or somehow uh, it, it gets factored in in some way that they might not acknowledge publicly. I think that's a, I think that's a very astute observation. I think that's a very astute observation. But I but again I think it gets to. Everybody is an individual is an individual case. Uh, I know someone who is strictly math, who is a phenomenally successful sports better, and it will tell you if I let he he will say if I let my opinion get involved, it never goes right. So I'm going to adhere almost like he doesn't say like a robot. I'm using like a robot to the numbers, and that's what works for him, and it works spectacularly well. But again, the single most successful sports better I know is exactly what you just described, Jake, which is he shuns analytics. He thinks in large part, if not entirely, that they're bullshit. And it's his life. He is a professional better. He does nothing else. He derives no source of income other than betting sports, and he does so with a phenomenal discipline and he has certain ways that he bets certain sports he observes every as much he watches as much sports as he can he believes in the eye test he'll even tell you believes in the eye test but it's his eye specifically that makes it work and there is something in his specific intuition you know malcolm gladwell wrote that book blink uh, among his trio outliers and tipping point the other two i think when those three came out sort of in, in, a, in a batch but blink was about the intuition uh through the lens of businessmen primarily where they can't really describe to you why they know why they're making the right decision in the blink but it's all those years of experience it's all those data points that have registered in their brains that produces conviction and they can't really articulate it to you why it is that they know why they're doing that. They just know that it is. And I think those people are fewer and far between. Right? I think those people are special. I think 98% of bettors who are listening to this and are saying, oh, that could be me. They're fooling themselves. Um, and I think, you know, that's the other thing. Bill Krakenberger, who's on my show, was saying the other day, you know, he can't tell you how many people now with legalization tell him, oh, I want to be a pro better. That's all I want to do. And he tells him, he goes, I wouldn't if I were you. You know, and Bill is a sports better. He's a, he's a pro better. He's like, you have no idea what this takes to be good. And um, 
so I, I don't know. I, that's a long way of saying your initial observation, I think, is is exactly right, that there is there are super successful betters out there who um, just do it their own way and don't need those numbers. And again, this comes back to and this is sort of an overriding theme here. Forgive me, uh, theme here. Forgive me for being repetitive. The 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 super analytical guys who think their way is the only way. That's uh, they're they're way too arrogant if they feel that way, you know, and they shouldn't. Good, it works for you. It's not an absolute though. Absolutely, no, I completely agree. And I think the best part is if you talk to the mathematical, analytic analytical type person about the eye test person. They would say, well, maybe there was one, but the other 99 you don't hear about, and, and they are unsuccessful. Or they'll go through why yeah. certain approaches aren't right or, or best for winning long term. Yeah, and, th- and they're probably right, Jake, and they're probably right. I would agree with them. So I want to ask about the betting component. Did it take long to grasp the staking, the money management, you know, overall protecting your bank type things? Because a lot of the time people seem to spend is on their model and their analytics and finding useful information on, on Twitter yes. or elsewhere to use. And then when it comes to staking plans or bet sizing or just general money management, they're often ill-equipped to handle it, and then they just don't give themselves the chance to succeed. 100%. 100%. I think anybody who tells you, anybody who's been betting uh, for however long, and they tell you that they were winners from the beginning... <laughs> they either haven't bet long enough, or you know they made two bets and they're giving you an analysis of those two bets, or they're or they're lying to you, right? I think everybody takes it on the chin early, and what you say is a very very big point, which is you can actually be a very good handicapper and a very successful handicapper, but this is why they keep building casinos and sports books, right? You can still be a great handicapper and not make any money and lose money because of uh, money management and staking. And so I think that's the other thing, right? That's the other big element to this, which is, look, um, you know, this is this applies to other endeavors as well. You can be the smartest guy in the room, but if you haven't figured out the way to make this work on uh, on the balance sheet, uh, you know, then then what does it really matter in the end? So. Uh, even the best handicappers, and believe me, bookmakers will, to a man, will tell you this. They've known a whole bunch of great handicappers. This is the beauty of, of knowing the Chrissy Andrews of the world and the Jay Roods of the world, who I've had the pleasure of knowing. They'll tell you, oh, I know great handicappers. Never win a dime from us. That's all you need to know. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I wanted to ask about a little bit of advice you might have for a couple of segments, and starting with the sports betting media industry, and, and most people... We'll be aware of your work, and you're as good as it gets within this space, and consistently putting out great content on the, you know, the Megapod, beating the book stuff, Veasan, obviously the radio show. What advice might you have for those who are looking to get into the sports betting media space? Well, thank you for that. First of all, Jake, I, I don't, I appreciate that. I, I think that the biggest thing I would say to them is, and I would even substitute sp- any any other discipline with sports betting, right? I think we just happen to be talking about sports betting. Um, but I think in anything that you do, you have to apply yourself, do it with love. It's the old cliche. Um, I spent hundreds of hours doing a podcast, countless hours. And most of those hours were in prep or in 
post-production editing them. These are the podcasts now. And you're lucky, Jake, if I was wearing pants in my apartment in San Francisco. And what I mean by that is dive into it. Want, want to be, you know, have the desire to be good at it. Prepare yourself to be good at it. And if you are good at it, then expect your listeners to expect it regularly. And so, you know, someone was just asking me, my, uh, my hockey analytics friend, Annie McNeil, who lives in Edmonton, Alberta, who's my hockey guy on VEASAN, and he's starting his own podcast. And I said to him, well, there's, there's, two, there's only two bits of advice I have. I said, one, make it sound good. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm just talking about technically. If there's a distraction, if, if the quality of the sound, and we're not even talking about the content now, if the quality of the sound isn't up to snuff, people are going to drop out right from the beginning. So make sure that's good. But the other thing is prepare to be good and prepare to, prepare to dive in and make this your passion. But I think sports betting, the extra layer is this. And I say this with legalization as a, as a context primarily these days, which is you can't know sports betting in a week. You can't know it in a month. And I hate to tell some folks even now who would think that they know it in a year, but you can't know it in a year. Those of us that, have, that are, take sports betting seriously, this is in our DNA. This is kind of our lives. If we didn't do this, and I think I speak on behalf of many when I say this, if I didn't do this, I have no idea what I would do in life. I really don't. Like there's no other option because nothing is, is as authentic to me as this is. I sort of get an Oprah-ish on you now, Jake, so I apologize for this. But like, but like my, you know, my, this is, this is our true selves. And I think, you know, we speak a language, we speak the same language, we speak the same currency. And so I think people who are specifically going into sports betting, besides those first two sort of broad things that I'm saying, um, are you in this, are you in this life or are you not? You can't fake this because in sports betting, you can get sniffed out real quick if you don't know what you're talking about. So make sure that you're committed to this in a way that goes beyond anything else in your life. I couldn't agree more. And it's pretty easy to find out whether someone has the the passion for it, you can probably just ask them about the odds on the, the Mayweather-McGregor fight and and they may look at you with a bit of a puzzled look or they might go into detail for 20 minutes as to why it was the the biggest edge on yeah. any sporting event in the history of you know sports betting. Um, and you can find out pretty quickly which side of the fence they sit on. And you mentioned Gladwell earlier and obviously his 10,000 hours theory. I'm guessing there's probably a number of bets that you you know, you've probably need to have placed to right. talk at a certain level on these topics with those that do it for a living. It may not be 10,000. It's probably closer to a hundred thousand, but you know, who knows, but that, uh, that authenticity about it all is, is certainly yeah. true. The other segment I wanted your advice on was for recreational bettors. And with the context or the backdrop of, of legalized sports betting, coming to many states pretty quickly in the U.S. What advice, or I know Bill has certain advice, but what advice would you have for those recreational bettors out there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, and that's where I sort of have to, so everything I just said about you, you just asked people who want to get into sports betting media. So that's one bit of advice, which is super extreme and super passionate, which I was just talking about. And then you're asking about, okay, so casual bettors. That's a, that's a totally different thing because for me, I have to sort of stop myself and realize, okay, well, you're, this is your life. 
there's no bigger passion in your life. And certainly if someone else wants to make it their chief endeavor, they've got to have that same passion. But I got to realize, and I have to stop myself every day and realize this, Jake, because sometimes I'm too close to the sun on this, that 90% of betters are just doing it for the heck of it, right? They're just doing it for entertainment. You know, they're spending a couple days in Vegas or they're just, you know, they're kind of just want to enhance, enhance the football experience. But they're not really nearly as passionate about this as you and I might be. They're just kind of betters, recreational betters. So all I would say to those people is, all right, well, if, if that's what it is for you, just keep in mind that that's what it is for you and be okay with the fact that you're going to lose probably, right? And lose within responsible means, a certain, you know, general, you know, cautionary tales you would give to any gambler. Um, if you think, though, getting to the Krakenberger scenario, which is guys who are casual betters who then want to get into more of it and make it a more serious endeavor. I would just say to those people, everything we've talked about before, which is, okay, this is not easy, right? That's the first thing. If you think this is an easy shortcut to some kind of um, wealth or whatever it is that is in your mind, think again. It's not. Um, bookmakers have been at it for many, many, many years. You're not going to reinvent the wheel. I know you, and, and the biggest thing is, just because you're a sports fan, right? Just because you're as passionate about your team, let's say you grew up a New York Giants fan, and you know, you've watched more football than any of your friends or whatever, doesn't mean you're going to be a good better. And I think that's the biggest disconnect, that people think because you're a great sports fan, you're going to be a, a great better. Quite the contrary, oftentimes. Before I let you go, Gil, I just wanted to do a, a couple of quick hits and the first thing that comes to mind on a couple of points. So uh, what's the best book you've read outside of Moneyball in the sports betting field? Uh, Stanford Wong, still back in the day. Uh, best book, no question about it. Current day, who's the most respected handicapper and sports better that you can name? You want a handicapper and a bookmaker, both? Yep. Uh, a handicapper who is known, a handicapper who is known, I would say, uh, Rufus Peabody, uh, of, of known handicappers who are out there in the world. He's one of the, uh, most successful. And as far as great bookmakers, uh, listen, Chrissy Andrews at the South Point Hotel Casino is the guy who I believe with Jimmy Vaccaro as his lieutenant and Vinny Maliulo there as well. I think they're the guys who are the oldest school who do things in the most non-computerized way who, who I just have a great respect for. And then I would say Jay Rude, who has a different job, which is to lord, as I like to joke with him, lord over multiple sports books within a corporate umbrella his role is a much different one than the one that Chrissy plays at a one-stop shop. So I think those two guys, Chrissy Andrews and Jay Rude. So I noticed the leader of the Hilton Super Contest is 80% at the moment, 32 and 8, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, I saw What that. was your best record in the, in the Hilton Super Contest? Uh, I, did ne I have never done 60% in the Super Contest. So high 50s. Not so bad, not so bad. Just being, just, just being honest. Never, and I've done it for four or five years now. I haven't done it for years and years. But yeah, no, never never 60% for a year. 
The Super Bowl's tomorrow. The Redskins are in, and you have to pick Kirk Cousins or Alex Smith to quarterback the team. Who are you taking? <laughs> That's a great question. That's your best question of the night, Jake. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say I take Alex Smith because if Alex Smith got me that far, he's not making any mistakes in the Super Bowl either. Wow, a bit of controversy. Last yeah. one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received, sports betting or otherwise? Uh, best piece of it, oh man, I, see if I had time to think of this, I would give you a great answer, but now I have to think of it one off the top of my head. That's right, um, quick hits. Yeah, uh, I think, um, oh boy, best piece of advice, um, it's not always about you. It's not always about you. In fact, most of the time, it's not always about you. Uh, and, uh, you know, this will sound cornballish and, uh, I think it's, it's going to be super hokey to lots of people, but I think in this day and age, particularly in our country, in the U S and particularly in our, in our industry, which tends to really show the worst of humanity, um, respect others, man, respect others, be nice. The very people that, uh, you know, you, you want to show some machismo too, and some bravado too publicly are oftentimes the very people you, you would go and die to have dinner with. And some of us know that. So be kind to others. Hate to, hate to be corny and hokey Jake as, as a final thing, but honestly, man, we, we need that this day and age. No, that's perfect. Gil, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I'm sure most who know where to find your stuff already enjoy it immensely. And for those that haven't get on the, the VEASAN side and check it out. Get on beating the book, the Megapod, and everywhere else. So thanks again for your time and your insights for the podcast, Gil. Much appreciated. I really appreciate you having me.